0: Hi, uh, my name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. Our experts are given just six minutes to present. This is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. I think you will find this discussion to be both informative and provocative. This program is moderated to be politically neutral. Our speakers will give their opinions and then we will encourage you to make up your own mind. Today's session is co-hosted by my dear friend, Todd Benson. Todd has co-hosted a number of previous programs. Uh, He is an old friend of mine from Solomon Brothers, where we started as uh, financial analysts back in 1987 together. This week's topics include coup d'etats, lost learning due to COVID, the filibuster, why the future will not likely look like the past, and advertising and marketing technology. Our first speaker is Edward Lutwak, who is a consultant with America's National Security Apparatus. Edward has written a number of books on grand strategies. His first book has become a classic, entitled The Coup d'État, A Practical Handbook. In fact, it is so relevant that the book was found heavily annotated by a slain military leader who had attempted a coup in Morocco. Today, I've asked Edward to explain the continuing relevance of The Coup d'État. Our second speaker is Rick Henischek, who is a professor at Stanford's Hoover Institute. Rick specializes in the economics of education and has written on the economic impacts of lost learning due to COVID. I want to learn if the education loss is permanent and a public policy can help students make up for lost time. Our third speaker is Greg Koger, who is the chair of the political science department at the University of Miami. Greg has written a book entitled Filibustering, a political history of obstruction in the House and Senate. The Democrats have recently threatened to end the filibuster, and I want to learn more about the filibuster's history and if we can all benefit from compromise and bipartisan support of legislation. Our fourth speaker is Rashad Tabakawala, who is the former chief strategist at Publicis Group, the world's third largest communications firm. Rashad has written the book, Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data. Rashad also writes a provocative blog, and I've asked Rashad to speak about whether the future fits in the container of the past. Our fifth speaker is Terry Kawaja. Terry is an old friend of mine, and we worked together for years at Solomon Brothers as well with Todd Benson. We first met in Solomon's associate training program in 1989. Terry founded and is the CEO of Luma Partners. Luma is the leading investment bank focused solely on digital media and marketing, providing M&A and strategic advice. I've asked Terry to talk about what is happening in digital marketing and ad tech. Our final speaker is Chad Spearson, who is an economics professor at the University of Chicago's Booth School. Chad has recently written an article about how consumer's fear of COVID led to an incredible shift in consumer behavior, and that fear was more important than state regulatory actions like requiring individuals to stay in place. I want to hear from Chad about how he used high-frequency consumer data to understand the economy. I would also like Chad to speculate about whether this COVID fear will likely discourage employees from seeking work either before they get their vaccine or even afterwards. All right, let's begin with Edward Lutbach, who will discuss the coup d'etat. Go ahead, Edward.
1: Hi. Well, um, after the January 6th riot in Washington, uh, there was a lot of loose talk about it being an attempted coup d'etat. Now, that would have been a sort of multiple impossibility. Uh, the word, the phrase, coup d'etat, means stroke of state. It means that you act in a very sudden way, uh, secretly, of course, and you take over the operational levers of the state. That is to say not the Department uh, you know, uh, of Education, but you take over the police not the Department of Defense, but any actual fielded units which are near Washington. So had this event in January been a coup d'etat, there would have be an attempt to subvert the commanders or the cater or conceivably the enlisted men, of, uh, let's say, a a company or battalion of the 82nd Airborne in Fort Bragg, three hours away, three or four hours away from Washington, an attempt to take over the Marine unit in Quantico, not the whole U.S. Marine Corps, of course, but a particular company which is commanded by somebody that the coup organizers are friendly, always oh, one of the coup organizers. And now these fellows show up in Washington, and they physically establish control over the FBI, the building, the Pentagon building, and all that kind of stuff. This is what happens when there's a coup. There's secret plotting and secret preparation, and then suddenly, uh, in a few hours, there's a takeover. People wake up in the morning, and they see tanks in the main squares, and. the the actual funk operational elements in the state, such as the military headquarters, police headquarters, in the old days would have been the radio station. Today, with the multiplicity of media, it would be actually the main Internet coaxial cable so that you can actually interrupt the Internet. You can close it down or you can limit it to your own messaging and that sort of stuff. So in other words, it's not an insurrection, it's not a riot, it's not what's happened in Burma, which is the armed forces, under their appointed leaders, as an organization, decide to take over control of, this, of the state and shunt aside the, politi- the politicians or the civilians and so on. That is not a coup d'etat. That is, we have a perfectly... A simple expression for that, it's a military takeover. If you want to be real technical, you can call it a pronunciamento, because in the, in the annals and so on, it was so common in Latin America for the armed forces to take over power and so on. The coup is quite different. It's not the armed forces under their generals and uh, multi-star generals, admirals, and so on, taking over, as happened in Burma. It's happened in many cases but rather a group of ambitious officers, why not colonels, let's say, who take over power and they send home all the people that outrank them, who outrank them, the generals, the admirals, just send them home and they take over. This happened in Korea, and I happen to be more or less around on site, and a a very intelligent, highly intelligent uh, colonel, uh, Cheong Dewan, who was just newly appointed brigadier general, one-star general, which in the Korean galaxy didn't mean very much because they had a big supply of two stars and three stars and four stars. So he was a mere baby general, really a colonel, with three fellow colonels, all of them had graduated. At the same year of the military academy, become fast fans, took over, seized control, um, accused the chief of staff for the army of having plotted the murder of Park Chung-hee, the previous president. So Park Chung-hee is murdered, and then instead of let's say the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the chief of the armed forces taking over, Minister of Defense taking over, in the turmoil of those few hours the ambitious colonel who happened to command the National Capital Command, which was basically a brigade, right there in Seoul, in the capital city. He takes over. He denounces the people above him as being complicit, gets rid of almost all of them, not quite. And he, in a few months, appoints himself president. Serves out the term, and then appoints another member of the conspiracy to follow him as president. Hence, Chon the one, not a Wu, his successor. That is the real coup d'etat. And so it's, and now, interesting question is that after in African independence, I mean, all these uh, colonies in Africa became independent. Very few of them had any cadre of educated people. Independence was not uh, you know, properly prepared. They might have required another 30 years, but the British got tired of it. The French got tired of it. So basically all these countries became independent, and they were all equipped with a president, with a parliament, with ministers, sometimes a president and the prime minister, and all of them were swept away by the, not the generals, but the colonel commanding the only live unit in the capital and got rid of everybody, appointed himself a ruler, and usually stayed for until he died, I mean, for 10, 20 years. So African colonies become independent. Very soon they come under military rule, because whatever else was missing in these newly created states, they all had some military force, with some inheritor of the colonial power which set up local... Uh, armed forces on a small scale. They were pretty small, but not small, too small to take over power. Hence, we find all of Africa, uh, govern- I mean, not all of them, but most of African countries ruled by uh, military officers who are not typically the commanding office, commanders-in-chief, uh, the generals, as it were, but rather ambitious colonels. And so the coup becomes very important during those decades. There's lots of them. There's also lots of them in the Middle East. Um, there were attempted coups, like the attempt to uh, take over power in Morocco against King Hassan II, the father of the current King, Mohammed. And um rather spectacular fashion, they sent up um, the fledgling Moroccan Air Force fighters, F-5s, the smallest aircraft you could qualify as a jet fighter, and King Hassan was coming back from from France with his royal flight, a civilian aircraft, obviously, and the Moroccan jet fighters tried to shoot it down and kill him. They failed to kill him, and that turned out to be a big mistake, because he landed, and he. there was accusations that King Hassan, this is the young King Hassan had taken over a very popular previous king, uh, an older man, much respected, and he was accused of being a playboy and playboy and so. On. However, it turns out he wasn't that type of person at all, because having survived the attempted interception of his royal flight and the plane landing, he rounded up some cadets, he rounded up some people and vehicles and, so on and immediately counterattacked and went to the house of the plotter, who was Mohammed Ufkir, who was uh, this Berber, rather clever guy, minister of the interior, minister of this, minister of that, and to go there and kill him. Uh, when when his body fell over his desk because he was shot over it, his blood went over the French edition of my book Coup d'etat, which was published in, in French, and eventually, in some 25 other languages, it's called Kudachar, a Practical Handbook. There's still a, an edition, a new one, by Harvard University Press, and it is a manual on how to do a kudeta. It's you know useful for any of you, any listener who decides he wants to take over a country, and it's a guidebook. You know, it's a practical handbook on how to do it, and it's only. Um, evil reviewers who said that there really wasn't a handbook. It appears to be a handbook, but it was really a way of analyzing these uh, concocted, made-up states that are not rooted in a strong political community, but which are a, the machinery of state, which was typical of these post-colonial so-called states, which have a name, you know, Upper Luganica or Lower Maganica and have a capital city, they have a president, a prime minister, and so on, But in reality, don't have a political community. Hence, all you need to do is to execute a coup d'état in a rather really mechanical fashion, and you take over. So, uh, the uh, the friendly critics Edward, said, "Oh, it's me, a you... great handbook in case you need to take over a country." And the unfriendly ones attributed to me. Uh, political science purposes even philosophical purposes which is not the case I was um, at that time ever uh,
0: let me interrupt you for a second uh, yes. uh, ask some questions so um, whenever there is a coup d'etat in the world there's always suspicions that there's sometimes a foreign power behind it um, and you know the United States has been accused of participating uh, either in the actual implementation or giving the green light so I, I just I have a two-part question. One is, um, has the U.S. changed its policy in opposition to coups? Uh, mostly, I assume, because they haven't worked out well and it brought uh, bad reputational effects to the nation. Um, I'd like you to focus on two. Um, the first one being in Vietnam, where there was assassination of the then president and taken over by the military, uh, which I understand uh, Admiral Lodge uh, had given the green light to uh, through the President Kennedy and maybe the second would be with Pinochet in Chile, uh, which might have gotten the green light from the CIA and, uh, and the next administration. Um, first of all, do you think those were general, U.S. E First of
1: all, general answer. When anything happens in, in a long list of third world and near third world countries, they never want to blame themselves. They don't want to blame themselves. They blame it on a foreign power. If uh, anything happens in anywhere in the Middle East, some screw-up, some train accident, some failure, some incompetence, or an act of violence, it's immediately blamed on the United States or possibly in the old days the Soviet Union. Uh, I guess the Chinese will get blamed these days. So you attribute it to foreigners, which is much nicer than yourself. As for American involvement, I have made a detailed documentary study. There was exactly one coup d'etat, which was wanted and organized by the United States. It was against Arbenz, and that was in uh, Nicaragua 1954, or something of the sort, 1954, one and only. This was CIA operation. Let's get rid of him. He's a dangerous leftist, and so on. In regard to Chile, this Pinochet was a babbling, talking. Uh, I happen to speak Spanish as much as I speak English. I happen to have worked in Latin America. I happen to know the area, uh, uh, the, the, the Western Andean area, that is Peru, Bolivia, Chile. And what happened is that there was this bumbling Pinochet with all these sort of suburban, you know, liberal, leftist vague kind of thing, who allied themselves with some radical trade unions. And they started doing things that caused the truck drivers of Chile not to be able to survive, and therefore there was no truck transport. And because railway lines are very limited, it meant no transport. So everybody wanted to get rid of Pinochet. And eventually the Chilean army which, unlike all other armies in Latin America, had been strictly nonpolitical. Chilean army was set up on European lines. It was, never got involved in a coup in its entire history, but the Chilean armed forces had to remove Pinochet because he was wrecking the country with his wildly impractical ideas. The fact is the United States at that time, the presidency, Henry Kissinger, national security advisor, welcomed it. He was very happy because Pinochet wanted to essentially align Chile with, with Cuba and Castro and all kind of stuff. But that was he was happy. Uh, Nixon, Kissinger, and the whole American National Security Establishment was happy that he was removed. But they, they did not remove him. This is a, a, a fantasy idea that some official sitting in an office in Washington wills it. In a country like Chile, which is highly independent, which was not shaped by Americans, whose military had very little contact with the American military, had their own identity, a very strong one, and even if, let's say, Nixon and Kissinger made it top priority to remove Pinochet, they had no mechanism to do it. It was the Chilean armed forces reacting to the wildly impractical politics. Please note that in all the subsequent elections in Chile, there was no revendication of Pinochet. None of the the people that we've had, leftist presidents in Chile, liberal mean, presidents...
0: Uh, uh, just to interrupt for a second, was a, I think the guy was Lende, right? It was Lende. Pinochet was
1: a, or his politics or his policies. So that was a false accusation. But the more generic thing is that accusations of foreign coup, whether it's a French coup, British coup, American coup... I say these days Chinese, it is usually the locals attributing evil deeds to foreigners. We are wonderful people. It is these bad foreigners who do these terrible things. Coups are very much domestic phenomena in almost all cases. I know one case where the United States may have had some encouraging role. That was in 1949, Husni al Zion in Syria. Possibly.
0: Can I interrupt just for a second uh, and ask you about um, potential for coups in, i quote, advanced democratic nations? Um, and I, I'll ask two questions, one about the United States and then about France. Um, you know, Samuel Huntington wrote this book called The State and the Soldier, I think, in the late 1940s. And he argued that the U.S. military has respected its constitutional role uh, completely to not interfere and engage in acts like coups. Um, do, do you think that uh, Huntington is right and if anything has it gone even further in the direct direction that um, the U.S. military does respect and will always go along with the constitutional government?
1: Well, Huntington, who is a friend of mine, by the way, Huntington's book and his general interests were broader than, much broader than uh, the issue of whether the United States is going to have a coup or not. This will be he would not take the question seriously he was examining civil-military relations how they evolved he was reacting to phenomena such as the fact that after world war two general marshall um, the, uh, the overall commander of the american army uh, which was then an army of twelve million people twelve million um, then becomes secretary of state and things of that sort So. It, Huntington's broad view uh, of the civil-military relations in regard to respective power, budgetary influence, um, whether the you know the issue of how much influence the military have or should have, so it's much broader than that. If it he would have dismissed the coup as a you know, footnote at the most. Let um, I
0: me mean. change the topic to France. Um, In 1958, there was I'll call it a civil war going on in Algeria, and Parisians started rioting on the streets and demanding that De Gaulle be put in power. Uh, The then president of France went to visit De Gaulle, and De Gaulle suggested uh, that he resign and that he be put put in power to run the country. Uh, The president said, "But you know, if I resign, the vice president takes over." He said, "Don't let that bother you. Um, Just make the announcement, and I'll take over." So De Gaulle does take over.
1: Gaulle, as you know was a person who alone in London with very few followers maintained the identity of France in 1940 when the German occupied France in 1940 abolishing in fact the French government and Petain Marshal Petain in not in Paris but in Vichy sets up an alternative administration de Gaulle is the hero he restores France and all that stuff in 1946 after presiding over a squabbling coalition government, in which at that time the communists had 25% of the vote, at least, a a government that uh, he didn't like, he retires to colombay le deux eglises the small village where he lived, and stays there in colombay le until 1958, when enormous turmoil over Algeria, because Algeria was not a foreign country, it was not a foreign colony. Algeria was viewed by uh, the majority of French people as simply uh, an overseas department. You have the, the department de la Loire, you have the Department of this, and you have the Departement d'Alger, the Oran, and so on. France is nothing but France. So when the uprising of the MNR and then the FLN uh, takes place, and then this whole thing becomes a counterinsurgency situation, in fact, the pioneering of that. The the republic is in turmoil between people who see this as an endless war um, and the people who want to maintain Algerie Francaise. And out of this, the republic breaks, the fourth republic breaks down. And as you say, uh, the goal, uh, the Gaullist party, which had always existed, and had these stalwart Gaullists who, led by people who had escaped France in 1940 to join Charles de Gaulle in London, who were dynamic, energetic, energetic people. They, in this great confusion, they, the Gaullist party emerges, and they propose the goal, and suddenly everybody wants a goal. And as you correctly pointed out, the then President Coty uh, then sort of negotiates his own. A replacement with the goal. But Cotillier was in no position. He was a weak man who had been appointed president. President was not an executive position under the Fourth Republic. He was a prime minister. So the Gaulle, of course, takes over and he says, I'm taking over and with a new constitution, which is then very quickly uh, approved by the parliament as such as it is. And in that constitution, the presidency is no longer ceremonial, but executive with lots of power. Charles de Gaulle is the first president. After his departure, many years later, nobody wanted to restore the fourth republic. Nobody wanted to restore the uh, weak president-prime minister system, and to this day, the French have a president, which turns out to be pretty useful these days when nobody in Europe can get in Europe, like in Israel, nobody can get an election with clear results. So everywhere there are tangled coalitions. Only the French, because they have this presidency, you know, he has 50 plus whatever the, the vote, he has the majority vote. He's a, he can set up the. This is the, the goal concept of a stable presidency. That was you not know, when, the, just top, the top, for a that was attempted against um, the goal in 1961. In, in, I, when he wanted to withdraw from Algeria, and these four generals persuaded the, the paratroopers, the Foreign Legion paratroopers, the other paratroopers, the colonial troops, et cetera, et cetera, to, they were going to grab airplanes, fly to Paris, land the Le Bourget, Orly, and take over. And that's when de Gaulle went on television and said, My, you know, Français, Allez-vous, surveille la patrie, and all that. Go to airports, block the airplanes, reason with them, etc. So this was the coup d'etat against the goal, 1961.
0: Edward, thank you very much. Good. Uh, we're going to go on to our second speaker okay. now. Thank Goodbye. you, Edward. Uh, our, our second speaker is Rick Hanischek. He comes to us from Stanford's Hoover Institute, uh, where he studies the economic impact of education. He'll be discussing Uh, the potential economic impacts of COVID and learning losses. Rick,
2: please go ahead. Thanks very much, Larry. Well, everybody today is focused on schools. In the media, there's lots of attention to the schools, and it's largely on the wrong issue. The issue that the media has chosen and that the schools are happy to have discussed is entirely about what I would call the logistics of reopening schools, and we still have lots of schools that aren't reopened. What is not in any of this discussion, although some parents are starting to pay attention to it, is that there are significant learning losses with the closures of last March and the faulty reopenings throughout this entire year. The significant learning losses have a real impact on the US and that's what I wanna talk about. Now, it's a little bit funny to talk about this right now because we don't even know the full extent of the harm that has been done. That is still coming in as we uh, speak because for example, Los Angeles and San Francisco schools out here in California have yet to reopen for this school year and there's discussion that they'll probably try to reopen in the fall. Um, So the the losses that have occurred because of lack of of open schools, the remote and hybrid learning uh, by all accounts has not kept up with where we were before. The other aspect of this that has received a little bit of attention, uh, but not sufficient, I don't think, is that the impacts of school closures have been very disproportionate. Basically, poor kids or kids whose parents have to work or aren't prepared to help them at home have lost a lot and a lot more than the average. Some kids have probably done as well or better uh, with their parents pitching in and studying on their own. But what hasn't been ever discussed uh, to any extent is the economic cost of this remote schooling. Uh, The avoidance of this discussion leads me to dub this, the issue that must not be named. Uh, It turns out that we are going to feel the losses of this pandemic far into the future. And the reason is, is simple. Basically, individuals um, in the labor market are rewarded according to the skills they have. Now, there's lots of variation, of course, but on average, people who know more earn more. And so the impact of having schools closed and not learning over the uh, coming over the last school year, is going to follow the current kids who have been in schools throughout their careers, unless we do something different. Now, I'm gonna give you a few numbers that were developed with my colleague Lutra Wussmann at the University of Munich. We, in August, produced a report for the OECD, the Community of Wealthy Nations, Uh, for the G20 meetings that had occurred last November to try to get people there interested in this topic. So in August, we estimated what, what happened from March to August in countries of the world because of school closures. And we just presumed that schools would be back to their old routines in September. In August, our estimates were that the average person who had been closed out of schools would lose 3% of their lifetime earnings. But as we know, schools didn't reopen in September and it's been varied around the country and whether you go to private or charter schools and so forth, but in general, there's been a lot larger and significant losses over this last school year. So that my current estimates are that the average K to 12 student is going to face six to nine percent lower income than he or she would have earned uh, in the absence of the pandemic, and these are permanent losses. We have some evidence from various countries where there have been long closures of schools, and we see that it follows them forever. Uh, for example, Germany had a funny situation where they changed the uh, order of the school year in the 1960s. And to do that, they had short school years for cohorts who were in schools in the 1960s. If you go to the social security records for Germany now and you look at earnings histories, you can pick out that cohort because they're earning less than the people before them and after them who weren't Uh, having these short school years. So these are are things that will uh, come back to haunt all the current students. Now there's also an impact on the nation as a whole. Um, It turns out that economic growth is a function of the skills of a nation. Uh, The skills of different countries are very closely related to the long-term economic growth rates that you see. And these skills can be uh, proxied, measured reasonably well by just some of our international tests where we can observe who knows more math in in one country than in another country. So what's the the impact on the nation? Well, on average, uh, my current estimates are that U.S. GDP will be 3% 3% 3 to 4% lower every year for the remainder of this century. So put that into perspective. Uh, there was a recent study, I think by the IMF that, that suggested that the short run losses from unemployment and the disruptions of the pandemic were something like 3.3%. That's a one-time loss. I'm talking about a loss each and every year throughout the century. So it's multiples of the things that make the current news. Now these are permanent losses unless something is done to change them. There are ways that in fact schools can be made better. They generally follow along what we would have done, or should have done before or could have done before, but they become more uh, important that we follow them now. Um, so they have to do with using teachers better and individualizing instruction. Well, let me le- just leave you with a, a, a number uh, that will put it uh, perhaps in perspective for some people. Um, in terms of the present value of lost GDP to the US, uh, our, my current estimates are somewhere between 25 and 30 trillion dollars. Now we have roughly a twenty or twenty-one trillion dollar economy right now, so you can think of this as uh, the losses up till today have been equivalent of sort of not doing anything for a year in the economy. So I'll leave you with that, Larry. Okay, Rick. Um,
0: you know, in in reading your paper, uh, you mentioned um, other examples of crisis to evaluate what happens when schools close. Um, you discussed uh, teacher strikes. Sometimes there'll be um, a natural disaster in one area and that will close mm-hmm. schools for a designated period of time. Um, why are uh, I wonder if, if you can talk about, first of all, those other examples to give the audience a sense of how we know what it's like when schools close is the first question. And then my second question is, you know, as a technical matter, uh, although the physical plant was closed, uh, we did educate some kids virtually um, and to what extent we should think about losses from a virtual education versus from an in-person education?
2: Sure. Um, Those are good questions. Uh, So there's examples of things like uh, strikes. Um, Just uh, the previous speaker talked about all the coups in uh, Latin America. Well, the other thing that Latin America is famous for is long-term labor strikes. And so there have been long-term strikes in Argentina that then show up in future earnings of kids that didn't have schooling when the teachers were out on strike. And so we have a number of those examples. None of them are perfect because, as your second su- question suggests, Today, we have some technology that can be used to try to ameliorate the problems of not having schools open. And we've tried to do that, and in some places we've done a a pretty good job of it, but not enough places. Uh, By all evidence now, um, people who are learning remotely uh, do not learn at the same pace as they do or used to in in class learning. And so we've cut down some of the losses, but we haven't eliminated them. But that only happens to part of the kids. Some of the kids, like your kids, Larry, um, have been helped by the fact that you're there helping them out uh, with their lessons, you're looking over their shoulders, you're making sure that they're tuned in to the lesson and not to, the, to some game. Uh, But that's not the case across the entire population. And in fact, uh, if you look at the large city schools in the country, um, on average, they can't find five to 10% of the kids. The kids have just disappeared. Now, some of them have gone to charter schools or private schools, some are at home. Some of them are clearly just feral. They're out there someplace and nobody knows quite what they're doing, but they're certainly not in a learning mode. So what we've done is both harmed these kids and we've expanded the discrepancies to gaps in learning between the better off and the poorer kids. And this is gonna come back again to hit things like the future income distribution and gaps in uh, earnings of uh, some kids versus other kids.
3: Hi, this is Chad Severson. I'm wondering if I might ask a question um, about the magnitude of the effects, uh, Rick. You were you were trying sure. to hit. I think you've hit the qualitative issues completely. Um, you mentioned you're estimating a loss of six to nine percent earnings. That's about typical of what. The literature has found for a year of schooling. The, as you know, the so-called uh, Mincer Um I think we're looking at maybe 15 months then of, of virtual schooling as opposed to physical schooling, kind of on the top end. So the average across all kids in the U.S. might be a little less than that. Isn't that effectively saying that you're you're finding that the efficacy of virtual schooling is basically zero if you're if you're in virtual school for a year on average? and then you suffer an earnings loss equi- equivalent to one year of schooling, You've, you're basically saying there was no knowledge transferred during this past year, isn't that right? And then the well, GDP numbers are even uh, bigger. A little, little bit, a
2: little bit, Chad. Um, the, what we do know is that um, on average, there's a lot of, of learning loss normally over the summer months. And you could think of the particular the closures Uh, last year from March through the end of the school year in almost every school of the country as um, an expanded uh, summer slide. And in fact, kids were moved way back by that. And the uh, remote learning has made up for some of it, but we were much worse off than, uh, than just the three months because we extended that slide period.
3: Sure, but I, I think that estimate implies we are one year worse off.
2: Yeah, we're. I mean, if you do it in terms of years of schooling, what we have are uh, a variety of places where they've actually have test data and what kids learned, and it's from that that I'm giving you these estimates. I see. Um, it's imperfect data, but um, you know what you're you, what you're doing is saying the average. Uh, learning, uh, we don't measure how much kids learn, but in a year of schooling, it's about 10% higher uh, earnings is right. the normal uh, thing. Um, what I've been doing is sort of saying, well, the the old relationship between years of schooling and how you count it uh, over the year is sort of broken by this whole experience. and. Um, there is some uncertainty in the estimates I've given you, uh, but I don't think that uh, many people think that we've made up for a huge amount of uh, the loss. Now, for some kids, that's true. They've, they're probably ahead, as I said. Uh, but for the, on average, it's not.
0: Let me ask you a okay, question about you. summer school. Um, you, know,
2: you know, as a nation, we
0: generally take the summer off. Um, you talked about the summer slide. Uh, associated with test scores, but you know there is some benefits of giving some kids some free time and getting maybe some work experience or exposure to other stuff. Um, one thing we could do is we could mandate and encourage children to go to summer school for the next couple of years to catch up for that learning losses. Um, I understand that goes against certain cultural norms, um, but I'm wondering, do you think if we did do summer school, eliminated the summer slide, and made up for that lost learning, whether we could recapture that, those amounts?
2: Well, that's one possibility, and certainly lengthening school days, school weeks, school years um, is uh, uh, one step to take. If we just provided uh, summer school, as a number of large schools have started to talk about, uh, but they're not quite organized yet, uh, if if we just, offered more summer school, we'd probably get a a, uh, part of the population accepting that and another part not. And it could in fact just exacerbate some of the discrepancies we have. I think that the answer really has to be that we have to make the schools better than they were if we're going to eliminate the harm. Uh, That if we just went back to where schools were in, Um, January of 2020, uh, we will have permanent harm. So we have to make the schools better and that that's the only hope uh, in large scale for correcting this problem. But we know how to make schools better, frankly. We just haven't been willing to do that. Um, You know, we know that there are huge variations in the effectiveness of different teachers. If we used our more effective teachers more intensely, we could make our schools better. And in part, that also relates partly to Chad's question and partly to what the future is like. My guess is that next fall, there's still a fair amount of remote hybrid learning and Mm. not everybody is back in school. And I also, this is just a guess, but I think that there are some teachers that are much more effective at remote learning than others. And they're not necessarily the same teachers that are the most effective at in-class learning. So if we thought about how to manage our schools better so that we used our effective teachers more intensely, we could actually pull out of this and come out ahead. Uh, But that hasn't been on anybody's uh, discussion list. The only thing that's been on anybody's discussion list is how many feet between desks and How do we make Mm -hmm. it absolutely safe for everybody uh, to be back in school as opposed to uh, focusing on what kids what's happening to the kids and their learning.
0: Let me ask one final question for you. Um, It used to be, let's say that someone caught a cold and it knocked them out and they couldn't participate for a full calendar year, Uh, but they rejoined the class the next year. Um, I know it, it had to hurt the kid to be out of school for a year, but my understanding is that kids generally catch up or almost catch up all the way. And I think what distinguishes this example is how many kids, if you will, were sick that year. Now, some kids, as you said, did perfectly well. So I think we could think of it like this. In any given classroom, say, a third were school, the whole time equivalent, a third were harmed a little bit, and a third were harmed a lot. It's like having, you know out of an 18-class kid classroom, six kids were severely injured and had health issues that year. Um, by that composition of a class with such a varied amount of learning loss, how do you think that will affect the classroom uh, going forward?
2: Well, that's going to put more pressure on the teachers, frankly, because mm-hmm. the variations in every classroom uh, of the kids that they have is going to be much larger. And that's why the, the the second example of things we should have done all along that we haven't, um, it would be more uh, individualization of the teaching, that we have lessons that are prepared for where the kid is, as opposed to some sort of average of the 18 kids that you have. And here's where technology actually can help, because we're starting to get technology that helps to um have this individualization for individual kids. And some of the uh, charter schools that pulled out of the pandemic more quickly, in fact, use that kind of technology to make sure that kids aren't doing exactly the same thing, but in fact, are getting the right material for where they're at.
0: Rick, thank you so much. We're gonna go on to our third speaker now, Greg Koger who is the chair and professor of political science at the University of Miami. He has written a book entitled Filibustering, A Political History of Instruction in the House and Senate. Greg, why don't you take us away?
4: Uh, Thank you, and thank you for having me on. Um, First, to be clear, I'm here to talk about the past, present, and future of the Senate filibuster. I'm not here to make an argument, uh, but rather just to help, you know, start a conversation on the topic. Um, I will recap some of the background information on um, you know what filibustering is and how we got to this situation. Uh, talked about current options for um, changing the Senate and and then you know we can talk about how to go forward. Um, first of all, one of the, the points my book makes is is that you have to think of a filibuster uh, in generic terms as a form of strategic delay in a legislature. So anytime you've been in a meeting and someone seems to be dragging it out, to try to win, that is a filibuster, and, and it can happen in any legislature. It has happened in the past in both the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate, uh, so it's not specific to you know one chamber of, of one country. Um, in the in both chambers, but especially in the Senate, filibusters used to be wars of attrition. So what would happen is one senator or a few senators would get together. And they'd start to consume time, maybe they would give long speeches, maybe they'd make lots of, of procedural motions um, but they would they would have to like waste the time of the chamber and the rest of the legislatures their challenge was to, was to wait it out. Um, they would have to stay near the chamber floor while this was going on, and they were just hoping that like through their numbers they would be able to to Stay there, wasting time longer than the the filibustering senators could waste time. Um, this could be, and this could be, you know, a horrible spectacle for the Senate. So there'd be a lot of public public outrage or criticism. Um, but you know, that's the way it was. This began to shift in the early 1960s uh, when senators began instead to use the their cloture rule as a way of ending filibusters. The cloture rule had been in, on the books in the Senate s- since 1917, and what it did is it allowed and still allows a supermajority of the Senate to impose an end on, on debate time on a piece of legislation. Uh, by now, nearly all legislation is subject to uh, a 60-volt threshold. That means basically on, on any piece of legislation, there is an assumption that somebody wants to filibuster it, and so the leaders of both parties go into the, the process thinking, all right, autumn, of course someone's going to filibuster this bill, so how are we going to bring debate to a close? Um, and In, partic- in, the, in the, the modern Senate, like right now, that means that for a piece of legislation favored by the Democrats, they need all 50 Democratic senators and at least 10 Republicans to join them if they want to pass Uh, any piece of legislation that that is being filibustered. There are exceptions to this process. By now, uh, after a series of changes over the last 10 years, all nominations only require 50 votes uh, in order for for a majority of the Senate to bring debate to a close. Uh, And then a second major exception is budgetary legislation can be considered on the floor of the Senate through what's known as the budget reconciliation process. This is what was used to pass the Trump tax cuts in 2017. This is what Republicans tried to use uh, in order to repeal Obamacare in 2017. This is how the Democrats passed COVID relief earlier this year. Uh, and what the Democrats have been talking about doing is that if they're going to pass an infrastructure bill, that they will also, you know, call it budget legislation and try to pass it that way without any any Republican support or without requiring them to get Republican support Um, and that is possible if you have legislation that that is budgetary in nature taxes spending uh, you know cutting major entitlement programs what you can't use it for is anything else and so the problem facing the Democratic Party is a lot of their agenda is now like hung up in the Senate Uh, minimum wage increase to fifteen dollars an hour immigration reform, election reform, police reform. These are critical pieces of legislation to the Democratic Party, and they are struggling to to, to, try to find a way that they can get to 60 votes in the Senate. Um, And so that has led to a a debate over uh, possible reform or the way the Senate works. Uh, Three options that have been talked about. Uh, One is to switch to a simple majority cloture process, uh, the, you know, the Senate has already done this, essentially, on nominations, uh, and they could just extend the same precedent to apply to legislation as well. Uh, a second option is to make filibustering difficult again. Um, and to be clear, I mean, w- one major point in my book is that this would require procedural reform as, w- re- reform as well. Like, the reason majorities shifted away from these costly wars of attrition is that you know, it, it was very costly for the majority as well. So costly, they finally said, you know, we're never going to win these anymore. Let's give up and, and use the cloture rule. So if they're going to go back to, you know, wars of attrition, the, the Democratic majority would need to make it hard for Republicans uh, to filibuster, either politically difficult or requiring physical effort. Last option is, you know, a bipartisan overhaul of the Senate rules encompassing, not just changing the way that the filibustering happens, but also the way they set their their agenda, because that is like the overarching problem that the Senate faces. It requires unanimous consent to set its agenda, and that like leads to a set of ongoing quarrels that then have consumed the entire chamber. Uh, I have more, but I should stop there for questions.
0: Greg, thank you. All right, um, let me start out with... Uh, Something that McConnell has suggested, Uh, he said that if the Democrats get rid of the filibuster, that he would fight a battle of attrition, and the way he would do it is he would deny a quorum in the Senate. Um, Can you comment a little bit about uh, the history of uh, the quorum, how they dealt with this sort of uh, war attacks in the past? I remember in your book you mentioned that uh, the Senate police once – uh, took down a Republican senator in his chambers, uh, which had been blocked blockaded uh, and that they hauled him into the Senate floor to get the quorum. How do you think uh, as things escalate in that form in that method that you'll see um, other procedural ways to minimize uh, or get around the filibuster?
4: absolutely so uh, the Constitution requires within each chamber, the House and the Senate, uh, that if they're going to make any sort of policy decision, they have to have a quorum. And a quorum means at least half of their members. Um, and in the in the past, in both the House and the Senate, one way to filibuster was for people to just not participate in the process to say, you know, there's a vote on the floor and I'm not going to vote uh, because uh, you need to prove that there's a quorum here. And by not voting, uh, I'm not contributing towards quorum. And so if the, the majority party has some of its members missing – uh, then, if the minority party just refuses to vote, then there's no quorum. Uh, so classic form of filibustering is quorum breaking. Actually, over the last ten years, we've also seen this in state legislatures in Texas and Wisconsin. Um, you know we've seen filibusters based on on state legislators fleeing the state actually uh, to break a quorum. So one th- the major reason that wars of attrition filibusters were very costly is that, if one senator or two senators are on the floor speaking, what they can do at any time is, you know, end their in their speech and then uh, call for a vote, or just note that there there's nobody there in the chamber, and that's known as a quorum call. And in order for anything to happen next, then then the 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 rest of the Senate has to show up and prove that there is in fact a quorum uh, present. So what Senator McConnell is saying is that you know if if you know, if the Democrats are going to do this. Then, what one Republican can just, you know, note that there's there's there isn't a quorum in the chamber, or make you know call for some sort of roll call vote, um, and then force all 50 Senate Democrats to come to the floor of the chamber and prove that they are in fact there uh, and ready to do business. Um, and I stress, like, it only takes one Republican to do this. So the other the other 49, they can be scattered around town raising money. Uh, sleeping at home, um, doing whatever they want to do. It's the Democrats who would have to pay the price to come to the chamber, abandon whatever whatever private or or public thing they are doing, uh, and prove that they're, the the is there are ready to do business. It'd be very costly for the Democrats to be very disruptive, um, and it highlights the fact that like you know, it's it's not a simple thing to simply just say let's let's change the the cloture rule or let's go back to wars of attrition because. You know the, the minority party every well any senator uh particularly senators in the minority party have a set of rights they can use to tie up the chamber
0: i, I want to talk about uh the work of yale uh political scientist david mayhew for a second uh he's spoken to my book club a number of times and in his work he analyzed every major piece of legislation uh since um 1946 until uh until he retired. Um, and what he noticed was that oftentimes legislation um, was had was insu- major it was insufficient to get past um, the sixty votes or sixty seven votes uh pre nineteen seventy odd when they changed the rules um but then when the legislation did pass uh it passed well over uh, the required amounts. It appears that there had been uh compromise change in opinions um and One of the things that Mayhew argues is that um, maybe it's for the better that we have bipartisan legislation. Uh, Maybe it's better that we have supermajorities that finally do pass major legislation. And um, what front counter to that was uh, Dodd-Frank and Obamacare had no Republican votes and were major pieces of legislation, and I'm not sure that was all for the better to pass it in that way. How do you think about, uh, holistically, whether or not we should encourage Bipartisan compromise legislation that gets supermajority votes instead of strict partisan minds
4: Yeah, so I, I mean I think oh, so I would definitely think that yes Bipartisan legislation is better than strictly partisan. Uh, I actually think a lot of Americans even including most Democrats would say that that you know the um, The problem is uh, the challenge is that requires two parties that are ready to to bargain on major pieces of legislation and traditionally, you know and you know over the time period that uh, Dr. Mayhew, who of course is you know one of my heroes well the, the period he was looking at, you had a lot of variation within the Republican and democratic coalitions, so that there you know it wasn't an oxymoron to say that there were liberal Republicans or conservative Democrats, and so you know it was it was quite conceivable uh, that there were always people on the opposing party that were, who could easily come over and join a coalition to pass legislation? And so a lot of times what that what that would lead to is um, you know some bipartisan negotiations uh, and um, you know come together with a deal that didn't expose uh, the most you know conservative Democrats or the most liberal Republicans politically. Um, and, th- and allow the, the most, you know, allow those moderates to come over from the minority party and join in popular legislation. And, and yes, what you often saw in of them were these broad coalitions solving big problems. But it takes a spirit of bipartisan cooperation. And with a Democrats, It also takes
0: time. You know, um, certain pieces of legislation would sometimes take 10 years or more to pass. to gather that, I'll call it popular support that would allow for a supermajority to pass. Mayhew gives the example of, uh, takes an example of something that has very low uh, policy issues now, but the passage of the St. Lawrence Seaway, for example, which um, did not pass for, I don't know, it was on Eisenhower's Mm -hmm. list of 10 most important pieces of legislation for like eight years uh, and then finally did pass. Uh, Again, it, it passed. They changed it. Canada ended up kicking in more money. Um, you know some of the southern states who are opposed to it uh, were willing to give some money in exchange for other stuff. So um, I'm just wondering. I think there's a sense uh, that the majority party feels like this is my time. I want to get it done right, like, right now, like right now. Uh, and you know, waiting for voter legislation, waiting six or ten years, is an abomination. But is time uh, that horrible in the context of achieving these bipartisan support?
4: I mean that depends on how big the problem is and how long we'd have to wait. So I mean, take immigration for example. As you recall, back in you know 2005, President Bush tried to make immigration reform like a centerpiece piece of legislation for for his pre- second term of his presidency. And you know, they actually came up with a bipartisan compromise. It just turned out that in doing so, they energized a portion of the Republican Party that just fundamentally opposed. Uh, to a path to citizenship, and that has then become like a dominant part of the politics of immigration, uh, especially within the Republican Party. Until we got to a point where the, no Republican is willing to sit down and bargain on that topic, for fear that he or she will then be permanently tagged as, as someone who, you know, is soft on immigration, who like is you know benefiting the illegals, et cetera, et cetera. And so, th- it's a huge policy problem that has now been sitting awkwardly on the national policy agenda for 16 years, and I don't see a future in the next five to 10 years in which the Republicans sit down at the bargaining table and, and come up with uh, you know, immigration reform that, that both parties can agree to. So the question is like, do we just stay the way we are, or do we have one party that tries to push through its own preferences uh, without bipartisan cooperation? It's like That is the choice we're facing across a series of issues.
0: You know, one of the things that I I took away from your book was that norms of behavior, norms of uh, of the rules in the Senate is constantly under flux, that this isn't um, the the changes are are being talked about um, are consistent with a a a set of procedures that have been under ongoing change over time. How do you think about the filibuster in the context of historical uh, procedural norms in the Senate?
4: I mean, as you say, like, I think of the you know, the rules of a chamber as tools that people use to achieve the goals that they want, where the, the goals are, you know, fair terms of debate, but then also, you know, passing legislation that solves problems. The rules are there to serve a purpose. And if they are not serving that purpose, then you change the rules so that you get the outcomes that you want. And I, just, I don't think they have a lot of value in and of themselves. So when people talk about, like, you know, there's a realistic debate to be had about the filibuster on both sides pros and cons but like i don't care you know about history i don't care that it's been around for a long time by itself um, so i do have a very, so i have a very utilitarian approach towards understanding the role of rules in this process
0: greg thank you very much our next right, speaker is rashad tabakawalo Uh, He is the former chief growth officer and chief strategist at Publicis Group. Uh, He's gonna talk about why the future doesn't fit in the containers of the past. Rashad, please go ahead.
5: Perfect. Uh, The future doesn't fit in the containers of the past Um, can also be stated as how we all need to reinvent, reimagine, and rethink. Um, Why do I say that the future doesn't fit in the containers of the past? I'm just gonna pick three arenas. All of these words start with the letter M to speak a little bit about change around us. Uh, One of them is media, the other one is markets and money, and the third one is mindsets. So let's look at media and the containers of the past. There was a time, and there still is a time, where most of media we consumed fit in containers called compact discs or DVDs or newspapers or magazines. And as we know, increasingly they've all been unbundled down to individual scenes, songs, and articles, all digitized, streamlined, and available for remixing, reposting, resharing. Media also used to fit in containers of times, whether it was the infamous television network programming grid, the moment the newspaper or the magazine went to press, And movies were marched along their windowing schedule from theaters to pay TV, to video, to cable, to TV. Now windows are shortened, collapsed, everything is increasingly in real time. And in addition, all the movies and television shows long lost at time or another region are resurrected on criteria and or can be viewed with a VPN and an app and all schedules are malleable. And one of the reasons we see the challenges, whether in communication, in social, in politics, is because media is so different in every single way that it doesn't fit in the containers of the past. Let's move to markets and money. The Miami Heat Arena will soon be renamed for a company that most of us don't know called FTX, which allows for 24 hour trading globally of many instruments and is creating new markets and new instruments as we speak. Uh, We are obviously living in an age where cryptocurrencies and blockchain, which most people disdain, disdained in the past, still disdain today, is reconfiguring the future of transaction, store of value, and exchange. While Bloomberg is important, so is Wall Street bets and stockwits, and maybe the revolution will be on Robinhood. Insurance is no longer priced the old way. It's priced by the mile. Ownership of everything is fractionalized and tokenized. Coinbase is more valuable than Goldman Sachs. Among young people, debit is a new credit, and it's the next generation of striped squares of firms and afterpays basically show. So that's the second big thing, which is markets, which we do business with, and money with which we communicate with markets is also changing and doesn't fit anywhere close to what we all grew up with. And then the third container is really us. And by us, I mean many of us are on the older side of 45 or 50 or even older. And most of us and most managers are baby boomers, and our mindsets may also be containers of the past. If you think about millennials, who are a generation or two removed from the average age, of most leaders in non-tech companies, so tech companies are the only place where this doesn't work, but in non-tech companies, they've grown up in a completely different environment that we may have, and one that is more aligned with the future than what our roots were. So, for instance, they grew up multi-ethnic, where the U.S. next year will turn Caucasian minority for under 18 years old. We don't have to wait till 2045. It's happening next year for under 18. They grew up digital, and digital isn't even Facebook and Google. You've got to hang out at Discord and Twitch and TikTok and try to even figure out what's going on. Unlike many of us, they expect to do worse than their parents, and they've seen 9-11, the Great Recession, COVID, and the rise of Uber and TaskRabbits, and many of them will tell you that they believe that the future of work is gig, and as a result, in addition to skill building, they have to build social standing, brand, and speed, and they will tell you that they operate as companies of one in real time. And... Surprisingly, they are the ones forcing companies to become more purpose and meaning driven, much more than BlackRock and Larry Finkel and everybody else. But it's just not the mindsets of millennials that need to be reused, that we may also need to revisit our own mindsets as we see ourselves and older people. So someone who's healthy at 50 is expected to enjoy another 30 years of good health. And people over 50 now control 70% of wealth in the United States. So 70% of the wealth being controlled by people who are gonna live 30 years or more and COVID has shown that all of us can also have massive new behaviors. And so a lot of businesses are giving short shrift to older people where the money and reinvention might actually be. So you take all of these trends and they've been accelerated, accentuated and amplified by this little thing called covid 19 And when I hear words like the new normal, or your words like restarting, I want to tell people, you know something, I don't know what world you're living in. If you take the entire world and shake it with a health, financial, and social crisis, for at least a year and a half in the Western world and maybe three to four years in emerging economies, you do not get back to a new normal, you do not restart, you prepare for a new strange. And as a result, I would sort of end by saying that we should be thinking of ourselves in the midst of a great reinvention and a great rewiring, which had already begun because of globalization, demographic shifts and technology. And now we have the multi-year trauma of COVID-19. And a suggestion that I share with folks is like a five-step plan. And the first one is to understand how ourselves and people we serve or sell or work with or teach have changed and what they will start, stop or continue to do. The second, really, is to commit to continuous learning in a world where the half-life of knowledge and behavior is increasingly shortening. Uh, Deliberate practice and continuous improvement are probably key. The third is to imagine the exact opposite of what we believe, and this is a little difficult because as we get more senior, we surround ourselves with either people who are like us or we have algorithmic social media or we have people unwilling to tell us the truth. And so we begin to believe that our flatulence smells like Chanel 5, which it doesn't. And also the fourth is to remember that the future comes from the slime and comes from the outside. It comes from beneath us or besides us, but not within us, which is why IBM didn't see Microsoft, Gillette did not see Dollar Shave Club, GM and Ford missed Uber and Tesla. So in end, the future doesn't fit in the containers of the past. Uh, and we just got to make sure that our mindsets are not such a container. Thanks.
0: Thanks, Rashad. That was terrific. Um, Let me start out by um, talking about your mindset argument first. Um, It's interesting that uh, in your book you talk about the fact that we have data and the data consumes us and it leads managers down one route, but there's the, the soul of the business, the organic nature of relationships, which are also very important and you encouraged um, more direct relationship between management and and its customers. And it's, and you wanted to, you, you gave the example of United airlines giving out, giving out tickets to go visit all your clients uh, we've just been in a year where we haven't been in physical uh, a physical place with your clients. We haven't seen our customers. We've seen them virtually, but we haven't had drinks with them, uh, and we haven't really listened to them as well as we should have. How do you think about when we do reopening uh, whether or not we will go out uh, and touch our clients and understand their needs, or do you think... Uh, the virtual experience has been, has been a real-life experience that we, we have been able to understand uh, our customers?
5: So the, the answer is it obviously will depend on the customer, the country, and the industry we're in. But what I believe will happen is we're going to spend our times as managers across allocating our time, including our physical presence, across four different venues not two, which is what people used to think, office and home. The future of hybrid is not office and home. That's only for people who have no imagination. Uh, It's actually going to be four places. One will be the home. The office will increasingly be a museum. It will be an artifact where the headquarters will be where people go to get indoctrinated and see old memorabilia and where some old senior people roost. The other two places which is going to be where you're going to interact a lot with clients is neither the office nor home, Um, and it may not even be their office. It'll be at events, including, you know, there are companies like Automatic where all their employees work from home 12 weeks a year or 12 weeks a quarter, and one week they all gather at an exotic location and get together where they also meet clients and they learn stuff. And then the fourth place will basically be a third place, which is not necessarily a Starbucks but a WeWork or a Regis or other places. So every industry will allocate across the board, but my sense is business travel will return. But if you look at the airlines, most of them are anticipating for the next three to five years, returning at about 60 to 70 to 75% of what it was. So I do know that having recently been completely vaccinated and taking my first business, not business trip, first trip after a year and a week, um, I kind of was wondering where I was spending so much time moving physical meat around.
0: I mean, I, in your book, you talked about the fact that, just one sec, you talked about the fact that you used to be on the road like doing hundreds of business trips a year. Um, is yes. that, Do you regret
5: that now? Do you think it was a mistake? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the other thing is I've at least found that obviously, I'm fortunate in that, like, I, my job doesn't require me to be physically at a place of work. Uh, Not everybody has that opportunity. But, and I'm senior, so I don't necessarily have to be indoctrinated and trained, uh, which is a disadvantage, which is hard to do. But with that, I have found, for instance, I'm far not only far more productive, but, but the people I help find it much easier. And, I can basically serve the world from my room in Chicago, literally. Mm -hmm. And I kind of wonder, like, literally, when people ask me now to come and speak at a place, I say, why do you want me to spend six hours coming to speak (laughs) for an hour and coming back? What is the point? So I think what will happen is experience and relationship building will go in person. Content will become virtual. Todd, go ahead.
6: Okay, I can say that's interesting. Rashad, uh, I'm curious, basically, just like, what have been the things that have surprised you? I know you're one that's kind of a big thinker and thinks about a lot of the kind of, kind, of, kind of possibilities, but if we've, if we've come through this past year, what are the things that have you know, kind of surprised even you?
5: There's a lot of things that have su- surprised me, but I think the uh, the biggest surprise to me of almost anything is that many folks... Have truly, uh, there's a big divide between what we say at work or we say as management and what actually is happening in companies, which is we most people are using this opportunity to rethink their entire lives, literally. Um, you know, if you just look at, for instance, in many companies, let's look at Starbucks management. You'll see amazing turnover in the senior roles of Starbucks management, and it's just not just let's say. You know, the COO who went on to become the CEO of uh, Boots, Walgreens, there's massive across companies because a lot of people have basically begun to understand that life is fragile and it ends. And a lot of people, young, medium, and old, are redefining how they're going to spend their next 10, 20, 30 years. And we are talking about it, but work doesn't actually address that as much.
6: Interesting. And what about like some of like like what are some of the things that basically that you're thinking about that are you know, kind of what I'd say basically kind of like some of your out there theories about things, or you know some of the second order things, or things that you know that, that people you know should think about and probably aren't giving enough attention to right now.
5: So the the ones I basically I basically think about is this way. I I the exercise I I suggest to everyone, and again it depends on who you are, where you are, and what you're doing. So there's not one answer, but the exercise that I suggest to people, which then leads to radical thinking is the following. Number one is just think about one or two industries that you indulge with and how they have most dramatically changed. So for most of us, it might be you know, restaurants or it might be travel, whatever it is around you. Uh, just think about that. Then, then, then think about your own Whatever you do, whether you're a teacher, how all of that has changed. And just keep that to the side and, and then ask yourself this. If I were to start all over again today and I only had three rules, whatever I had to do had to be legal, whatever I had to do has to be technologically possible in 2021 or 2022, and whatever I do has to eventually make money or be cash flow positive in three years or less, what would you do? And there's nobody who I sit with in businesses who create anything that looks like their current business.
6: Interesting. What what, let it, me
0: try something. Go ahead, John. Go
6: ahead, go ahead Larry.
0: Sure. Um, I wanted to ask a question about the gig business. Uh, we had David Weil uh, from Brandeis, his Heller uh, School of uh, Public Policy, on a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about that he was uh, a little bit upset about the gig economy, mostly because it undermines uh, our ability to regulate industries and individuals. Um, When no one looks for a corporation, it's it's much more challenging for government policy. Um, On the other hand, um, when I I think about your career, Rashad, I'm I'm actually flabbergasted how long you stayed with one particular organization, given the breadth of your interests and the breadth of your uh, ability to start entrepreneurial activities even within uh, Leo Burnett. Um, why, why do you think uh, we've gone gig? What is it about transaction costs and corporations that have uh, declined and allowed for people to move around much more efficiently? And should we celebrate the gig economy
5: or should we frown upon it? So I believe we should celebrate the gig economy as long as we uh, provide the following two things portable health care that you can take with you wherever you go, because that's one of the big reasons why people are stuck to jobs they hate. So if you have that, which is one key thing, and then the second one is some form of learning credits as you basically move. But outside of those, uh, all of us are in the gig economy, and we just are fooling ourselves that we're not. So I believed while I stayed in the same company And, you know, a lot of people will tell you I stayed in the same company for 38 years because I was pretty bad and nobody employed me anywhere else. But let's assume that's not true, possibly. Uh, The reason I stayed was because every three or four years I could do something new. Literally, I was changing my job every three or four years because it allowed me to continue to learn. But this is a no-brainer for two simple reasons. If you go to most boardrooms, they're beginning to realize that what they have to manage is variable costs and their biggest variable cost is employees. And post COVID-19, they've figured out how to basically extract or get or connect with employees anywhere in the world in real time, even within their own organization. So the question they ask is why do I need 100% of you? What I basically believe is if I can sell you 25% of me for 50% of my cost, which saves you half, but I can then merchandise the other somewhere else, it's good for me. But the other reason why this gig economy is going to take off, besides technology, because besides COVID-19, is also because of the half-life of skill sets. Things are moving so fast that even within a technology company, they replace so many of their engineers every six, seven years. And therefore, unless you have the continuous education and healthcare, which are the two things you need, um, it won't basically sort of happen. So I think actually gig economy is actually very good because it gives you a lot of flexibility and plug in place. But right now we are limited, uh, A, because obviously current rules and regulations. You know, the biggest problem we have, and even I heard the earlier talks, etc., is all of us, including our leadership and everybody else, are fixated on a world that doesn't exist. This is a global world. This is a fast-moving world. This is a technological gig world. And all our rules and everything else are of the market.
6: Interesting, Rashad. Actually, uh, kind of along those lines, how how do you think about you know kind of one of I guess one one thing that's been observed to me is that basically that work from home is a work from home is an existential threat to the white collared um, you know kind of middle class, and that the end state of work from home is work from Mumbai, work from Delhi, work from Cebu City, you know kind of you know basically like the offshoring or basically the what I call the Accenture. Of, of, of the world, do you see it that way, or do you, or do you have a different take on it?
5: So I see it as a double-edged sword. That clearly happens to be one of those things. What it basically does, which is why my whole emphasis on education and working you know with machines, is, and in the nature of my book also, is that there are two parts of what we do. There's parts of what we do in our world which is spreadsheet-based, right? It's about data decision-making numerical driven logic. The other part of it is story based. It's storytelling, culture, environment, human contact, etc. I believe that any job that is lots, very spreadsheet based or very repetitive will basically be offshored, outsourced, or near sourced. So what's very important is to A, learn skill sets that allow you to connect in different ways that this cannot be done there. But on the other hand, also to learn new skill sets, because the other one is when you begin to see some of the caliber of people all over the world and the emphasis that they have on education, it is pretty scary, even in that space. So it is a double-edged sword. And you know, this was the piece that I wrote, which was very popular, which is something called The Future of Work, where I sort of explained this, uh, which has been now being read by a lot of folks, and people can see that rishad.substack.com.
0: Uh, thank you very much, Rashad. Uh, We're going to go to Terry Kawaja next. Terry uh, worked with me at Solomon, but since then has founded and become CEO of Luma Partners, an investment bank focused on digital media and marketing. Go ahead, Terry.
7: Thanks, Larry. Um, So advertising technology, or ad tech as it's known, occupies an esoteric corner of the B2B world that usually doesn't get much attention. Companies like the Trade Desk, Magnite, Pubmatic, Roku, Unity, Digital Turbine, Viant, and Applovin, that's right, I said Applovin, are hardly household names, and yet these eight stocks sport a combined market cap of $150 billion, over twice the value of the top five ad agency holding companies. It turns out these companies are foundational to the operation and monetization of the Internet. Subscription models are not an option for the vast majority of publishers, which rely instead on advertising revenue to support their content businesses, including journalism. The numbers at stake are substantial. Research firm eMarketer projects digital advertising revenue in 2021 will reach almost $200 billion in the U.S. alone and is growing at a breakneck 25% pace, as it has been for the last 15 years. That excludes the opportunity in television as that channel becomes digitally addressable as viewing shifts from traditional linear to streaming, another $70 billion of market opportunity. This is all part of the sector's migration from art to science as data and software improves both the efficacy and efficiency of media and marketing. But despite this growth and opportunity, the sector was out of favor with investors for many years, a phenomena I attribute to three factors. One, the overfragmentation of the sector. There are over 5,000 independent companies in the ecosystem. Two, the dominance of big tech's ad triopoly. Google, Facebook, and Amazon enjoy a two-third market share of the entire digital ad revenue. And three, the threat to user data sources under the guise of privacy. The user data I refer to is the fuel that drives audience-targeted advertising, an approach that yields substantially higher revenue than contextual targeting, which targets audiences based on website content. Audience targeting uses JavaScript, known as a cookie, that anonymously identifies the user and associates their viewing behavior for purposes of content and ad relevance. With audience targeting, men don't get feminine hygiene ads, and people with auto leases nearing expiration will likely see more Chevy or Mercedes commercials. Chevy if you're low-income, Mercedes if you're high-income. At a time when journalism and content publishers are suffering economically and are outgunned by the big tech platforms, they need this form of revenue realization. Now, there are two sources that threaten the use of this audience data. One is privacy regulation, and the second is data deprecation by the large tech platforms. Let's peel the onion on these two with a perspective on how they impact privacy and antitrust. Governmental bodies from Europe to the U.S. states have implemented legislation to protect user privacy and limit data collection, except for instances where the user explicitly opts in. While the aim of this regulation is laudatory, I would submit that there is both an overcorrection and unintended consequences the overcorrection comes in the form of conflation of the privacy concern. No one would argue against the need to ensure protection of users' personally identifiable information, or PII as it's known, but regulators have lumped that in with the cookie, an anonymous 10-digit number matched with the user's proclivities to personalized content and advertising. It's not dissimilar to when politicians conflate illegal border crossings with the H1B visas available for highly trained engineers. Both are quote-unquote, immigration, yet are very different. By doing this, privacy zealots have created a boogeyman out of the cookie and third-party data. In essence, there was always an implicit value exchange between publisher and user. The user provides their attention and data in return for free content the new regulations make this explicit by requiring users to opt in on every web visit where they are not registered. How do I know this is an overreach and that users are generally fine with the exchange? Well, the opt-in rate is over 90% on daily interactions by over 500 million people living in the EU. That's one hell of a sample. Anecdotally, if you ask young people, they are even more than happy to trade anonymous tracking to avoid paying for content. This restriction on third-party cookies means that publishers can only use first-party data collected from logged-in users who have given permission on, in their terms of service. This will have the effect of substantially advantaging the triopoly, an unintended consequence since these are the companies often cited as the reason for privacy regulation in the first place. So let's recap. These privacy laws instituted to protect users from something they don't really care much about are making the web worse for users, reducing yield for publishers, and strengthening tech monopolies. Swell. The other threat to audience data is deprecation by the large tech platforms, primarily Google and Apple, who control much of the digital tech infrastructure in the form of workflow intermediaries like DoubleClick, browsers like Chrome and Safari, and devices like iPhones and Android phones. Google has announced that it is eliminating the cookie and not supporting any third-party identifiers. Again, a move that will not harm their mostly first-party ad business, making the web less democratic. And they're doing this in the name of privacy. This coming week, in fact, Tuesday, Apple is expected to implement a restriction to tracking in apps on the iPhone which will have a similar effect of substantially hurting publishers and driving people to pay for apps, which, lo and behold, benefits Apple's App Store that gets a 30% cut of such revenue, also in the name of privacy. So the net effect of these quote-unquote privacy initiatives is to preserve and strengthen monopoly power. Currently, both Google and Facebook are facing antitrust scrutiny, but the odds are long on whether they will... Uh, be any substantive recourse. I believe we do need antitrust regulation on big tech to oxygenate the market and democratize the web. It's unfortunate that misguided privacy policies will have the opposite effect.
0: Thanks, Terry. Uh, let me start out with a question about these cookies and this privacy angle. You highlighted the fact that the EU has been aggressive as a a first mover in this regard. Uh, But we're seeing states in the U.S. also, I think it was California, maybe Virginia, have also been active in privacy policies. Um, Who's driving the American story? How how is it that uh, we're getting involved in this perverse way?
7: Well... Uh, sadly uh it's a really really small cohort of people um it's i i label them privacy zealots and the reason i do that is because y- you you have got these advocates um who you know believe in uh, uh that that uh again conflating the notion of what constitutes a privacy infraction from uh, all ends of the spectrum whether it's you know overt privacy infractions, uh, surveillance, I think that we could all agree is bad, and these general uh, anonymous tracking capabilities. And so you get uh, a lot of people out of universities. They tend to be out of, you know, the the left wing of these universities. They're the ones guiding policy which have been uh, introduced. And the net effect of this, I think, is, is, is dire because it, Particularly hurts smaller publishers.
6: Interesting. You know, uh, I'm curious. Basically, Rashad uh, Tabakawala, if you're still on the uh, on this call, does Terry have it right, or is he missing something?
5: Terry has it more right than most people do, um, and you know he's done the research, and I believe he it, it is right. And you know, to a great extent, what will eventually I think sort of happen is marketers, whenever you make it difficult for them, uh, they go to places where they think it's all well lit, but in effect, it puts them at further and further risks. So while this is also not good for consumers, at a particular stage, a marketer has no access to make what I call have strategic optionality. We saw that know, after Black Lives Matter, one of the reasons why every marketer had to go back to facebook regardless of what facebook did or did not do is they couldn't afford not to be with facebook and this is the first time i've seen marketing companies have no strategic optionality and this is not going to help them
7: i I completely concur with that other conclusion which is you know um if you're going to drive everyone towards facebook and and let's let's be clear The recent Facebook has one of the most phenomenally historically unprecedented, fastest growing media business in the world. Why is that? because demonstrated efficacy, right? They do this data-centric targeted advertising. And whilst I would agree that some of it is creepy and and Facebook in particular, you know, has got elements of of surveillance and and they're everywhere and the company itself can be criticized for a variety of things, one cannot take away the fact that uh, they've built a, you know, trillion dollar business on a rapidly growing uh, advertising business, that the reason why people continue to spend money on it is because it works. It's a closed-loop Petri dish of perfect information.
6: So if if, if you suggest that Apple comes out on Tuesday and says, we're going to introduce additional kind of privacy or whatever it is, which presumably makes it tougher for Facebook, is that does Facebook's stock sell off or does this hurt Facebook's business? Or does it... Does Facebook basically have such size and scale that they can get around it, and it basically just hurts you know kind of all you know kind of everybody else and only makes facebook stronger
7: um I think it hurts everyone uh so i i I would expect that um should this proceed as as planned uh it will have an impact on facebook stock, but i gotta imagine that's already you know factored into the stock i think in the long run and this is the sad part of it is it it unnaturally or disproportionately affects these, uh, helps these big companies because it may hurt everyone, but it hurts the, the bigger guys less or, or said another way, it hurts the smaller guys more. You know, the other factor here is uh, this whole notion of shifting from advertising, which is quote unquote bad, right, to paid media is that it's extraordinarily regressive right? Uh, 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 Scott Galloway, I think had a great quote. He said, increasingly advertising is becoming a tax on the poor because people with enough means will simply pay to uh, consume media in an environment without ads. So the notion that we shift more and more media towards paid channels, first of all, simply won't happen because there's not the economic wallet there to capture that. But it's also as a policy matter, uh, uh, again, from these people largely on the, on the left, extremely
0: regressive. Chair, can I go back to your comments about Europe for a second as being like a 500 million Petri dish? Um, if I was going to go on the Internet in France or wherever I am in the EU, uh, what would I see that's different? How has life changed in this EU privacy uh, non-cookie world? So the the cookie was
7: made to have sustained knowledge of who you are so that when you revisit sites you don't have to log in again and all 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 that you know stuff so so the cookie was actually created as an accident but the the net effect of it was to improve utility uh, for consumers you so you know when you go to a go back to a website that you've been to you don't actually have to it remembers your your password so that's the that's the net effect the other Consumer benefit uh, effect of the of the cookie. In the EU, you get a prompt every time you come to a publisher web page where you're not uh, a logged in or registered user that doesn't have first party uh, uh, data on you, um, where you've already offered up your, you know, let's say, your email address or your or your PII information. And it requires you to authorize them to uh, use cookies or not. And and again, it's making explicit the implicit uh, value trade-off. Now, I would say that the industry has done a horrific job of explaining the value proposition in the very first instance, because it was largely just taken for granted, given the way the web works. Um, my solution to this, by the way, is uh, is to have. Uh, by the way, absolutely respect. Uh, consumers' or users' preferences with an opt-out. So there is a very, very clear capability on the part of consumers who don't want any of their information tracked. No, thank you. Uh, I want to see general ads that don't uh, don't pertain to me. Uh, I don't care about personalized ads. There's a lot of people that say, I just hate ads and don't show me anything and by all means don't track anything. Great! Let's have a button that says opt me out and all of those people will simply uh, no longer have their data tracked. An opt out coupled with, I think, some additional teeth around antitrust will, I think, go a long way to level the playing field and maintain this economic advantage for publishers, which I believe is needed
0: for a vibrant, free and open Internet. We got a question emailed in from Mitch Feynman. He wants to know if we get rid of the cookie, um, could we use artificial intelligence uh, and context-based uh, content to track uh, what you may, who, you, what type of person you are, or what you want.
7: Yeah, I, I, I have no, uh, I, I'm not going to defend the cookie per se. Like, I, I don't care what the technology is. And I believe with the rapid pace of uh, agile software development that occurs in this sector, uh, that there is going to be a wide variety of capabilities to provide relevant and ethical, uh, effic- efficacy of, uh, of targeted advertising uh, to support the open uh, web. And yes, That will be a mixture of uh, uh, context uh, as well as uh, 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 audience-based solutions. Google has proposed something called uh, cohorts, uh, flocks, where you essentially dull down and don't target to the exact individual, but you target to a group uh, that share uh, the same proclivities. So I believe there's going to be a spectrum of opportunities. And yes,
0: technology, I believe, will, uh, will help lead the way. Terry, thank you. Uh, We're going to move on to Chad Spearson. Chad is a professor at the University of Chicago Booth School in Labor Economics. Uh, He will discuss the economic consequences of the fear of COVID. Um, Go ahead, Chad.
3: Thank you. Uh, Austin Goolsby and I set out to measure the effect of shelter in place and other so-called shutdown orders on economic activity. And in the process, we learned some broader lessons about pandemic economics that could serve decision makers going forward. We used mobile phone location data for the study. Uh, These data are anonymized. We can't follow any individual over time. Instead, what they offer is essentially a counter on the door of about two and a half million businesses in the US. So we can see how many people visit a business in any given week. If you remember what was happening one year ago, you were seeing two things occur at the same time. Shelter-in-place orders were being imposed in a lot of jurisdictions, and economic activity was falling precipitously. That's what we see in our data, too. A shelter-in-place order in a county was correlated with very large declines in foot traffic at businesses in that county. Uh, but as we know, correlation is not causation. There was, after all, another factor at work, the pandemic. It's possible that fear about the pandemic was driving both politicians to impose shutdown orders and causing people to remain at home of their own volition. In that case, the correlation between shelter-in-place orders and drops in business activities might reflect the common influence of the pandemic, rather than a causal effect of shutdown-type orders on economic activity. Here's how we teased apart these two potential effects, pandemic fear versus shutdown orders. We focused on businesses within the same metro area where some counties were subject to shutdown orders while others were not. If the state of the pandemic is roughly the same within a metro area at a particular uh, moment in time, then any difference in activity across borders where one side's under order and the other isn't would reflect the causal effect of the orders themselves. To see this as an example, consider the Quad Cities. Rock Island and Moline on the Illinois side went under a shelter-in-place order in late March. Davenport and Bettendorf in Iowa never did. We can compare traffic in a given week at, say, two sporting goods stores, one on the Illinois side, one on the Iowa side. The effect of the pandemic and people's fear of infection should be roughly the same on both sides of the border. That will be reflected in any common drop in activity across the two stores. Therefore, the difference in traffic between them would reflect the effect of the shelter-in-place order per se. What we found, repeating this comparison across hundreds of thousands of businesses, is that of a peak to drop in foot traffic that averaged around 60%, only about 7 percentage points of that, or 10% of the total, was from the shelter-in-place orders themselves. Those sporting goods stores on both the Iowa and Illinois sides saw big declines in traffic, It's just that the drop on the Illinois side was a bit bigger. In sum, about 90% of the total drop in economic activity was due to people avoiding going out voluntarily. Later on, when some jurisdictions started lifting shutdowns, we measured uh, those effects in the same way and found the mirror image. Measurable but modest, in fact the same size, modest increases in businesses' foot traffic when shutdowns were lifted. And when we recently went back and looked at the effect of reimposed orders in this past fall, we found the same small effect. So fear of the pandemic seems to move around activity much more than policy. We found further evidence bolstering this notion. First, within metro areas, businesses and counties that had more COVID deaths saw larger declines in business traffic. Further, while all businesses saw declines, those that were busier before the pandemic saw proportionately larger drops than those in the same industry that were less busy. In other words, when people did go out, they shifted away from, for example, the coffee shop on the busy corner and instead went to more out-of-the-way places to get their coffee. One actually sizable effect of these orders was in shifting traffic across related businesses. So we found that orders restricting restaurants and bars did, in fact, cause large declines in traffic at those establishments, but led to an almost equal sized increase in traffic to local grocery and liquor retailers. Similar shifts occurred from businesses deemed non-essential and toward essential ones. The bottom line of our results is that the largest driver of reduced business traffic by some distance has been the pandemic itself. Individuals' concerns that they might infect themselves, their families, or their friends kept them at home. Shutdown orders had additional measurable effects, but they were relatively small. The implication is that the way to really move the needle on economic activity is to make people feel their health is protected. You have to deal with the fear of the disease. Our study focused on customers patronizing businesses because that's what our data allowed us to measure directly. But there's been some speculation about whether a similar phenomenon also affects the labor market. Are people less willing to work or look for work because of concerns about infection? We couldn't measure that directly in our data, but it's certainly an interesting and plausible hypothesis. Any effects that might be there could shape the speed and locations of the recovery in the coming months. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Jeff. Um, My first question relates to, I'll call it, uh, societal norms. You know, when you compare Iowa and Illinois, particularly in the Quad Cities, you're really in the same community with consistent social norms. Um, I spent a good portion of my COVID year in Miami Beach, uh, and I'm currently in New York at Tuxedo Park, but uh, spending some time in New York City. Uh, the difference between these two communities is unbelievably shockingly stark. Uh, Miami is a party. New York is a ghost town. Both um, have similar uh, you know, concern uh, have similar COVID outbreaks, uh, but it's not taken very seriously in Florida at all. How do you think about um, these differences in social behavior?
3: That's a a great question. I mean, that, that's one of the reasons why we wanted to measure the effects that we did by focusing within metro areas, because we did recognize that there might be reasons why, for example, New Yorkers would. Resp- differently than folks in southern Florida. So we were comparing different parts of New York under the New York metro under different kinds of shutdown orders and different kinds of or different parts of, of South Florida. So what that essentially would do is, is the, the size of the overall drop would vary across metro areas, and we do find that. But it's still allowing us to measure the effect of any shutdown orders themselves by making that comparison within metro areas now if you want to zoom back and say well why why is it that new yorkers responded differently to the same sort of state of covid than south floridians i think that's a broader um set of questions that that you know other social scientists could help with and i i i could speculate some you know i think there are different different kinds of people are in the different areas and different political attitudes and so on and so forth um but that is exact, those kind of differences are exactly the reason why we tried to measure the effects of, of the uh, orders themselves in the way that we did.
0: Understood. Another question about um, public policy as it relates to increasing or decreasing fear. Um, I listened to the radio briefly today and, and there was an advertisement by a government agency in New York stating that um, you, you need to keep uh, diligent um, on COVID, um, that it's still active, that there are variants, and you need to get vaccinated now. What they didn't say was, you know, once you've been vaccinated twice with the Pfizer vaccine, you know, feel free to take off your mask and enjoy life and go to the party. Uh, get back to work and, stop sh- and start shopping. Um, do you think that if fear is the number one driving force for this economic activity, and if it is public policy's decision to uh, get back to school, get back to work, uh, get back to life. Should public policies public announcements uh, articulate that once you've been vaccinated, you should take off your mask and get back to work?
3: Yes, I think they very much should if if the fear is no longer warranted, there you know policy should not try to inculcate any more fear and I also you know the, just in terms of incentives, if we want to give folks who aren't yet vaccinated an incentive to, to vaccinate, I think saying, look, no one likes the way the world was for the last year. We, maybe we responded to it differently, but if you want to get back to something that looks more, quote, normal, get yourself vaccinated and you will be able to be, you know, free to interact in a way where you're not any, any concerns that you have or concerns that your friends have or family have. Are considerably lessened. I think that that is an important part of what needs to be done to get to get folks vaccinated. And I think continuing to play up the risks, which exist, and certainly for unvaccinated people, I sort of think like you. We've hit the diminishing or the level of diminishing returns with that with a lot of that already. The the folks who are truly still extremely afraid and the kind of people who would You know, double mask two months after they're vaccinated, even if everyone else isn't, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Those people, you're not going to move them. Their behavior anyway. (laughs) It's not. Those aren't the kind of people who we want now to move in terms of. Let's okay. You're you're not quite. You're not quite sure about getting the vaccine, but let's try to get you to take the vaccine. Well, you're not going to get them to do that by saying. Boy, even after you're vaccinated, everything is still dangerous. I think you're exactly right. We need a mix of message, messaging, and, and the dial starts to or should be turned more towards the hey, here's the carrot that comes with you know being vaccinated and reducing the overall state of the disease. We can all go back to things we want to do.
0: In your uh, there's an article in the Wall Street Journal last weekend uh, that quoted you uh, indirectly about your consumer behavior, uh, data. Uh, and they asked a, a different question, which you hadn't studied in, in great detail, which is, uh, if people are really scared, uh, are they going to rejoin the labor market and effectively get out of their house and go to a place of employment? Um, if you're going to speculate on that, um, what do you think the logic that you learned in your consumer traffic, uh, would apply to, uh, I'll call it employment behavior?
3: I think you could apply a very similar logic, that there is going to be a sluggishness of the response, now rather on the demand side, but on the, on the supply side, uh, of folks willing to go back and participate in the economy. The size of that sluggishness is going to be related to the local state of the, the pandemic. And so to the extent you're concerned about moving the dial on labor supply, um, one of the things you can do to affect that is to you know address the pandemic and make sure you we're vaccinating people as quickly as possible and taking other reasonable steps to try to get caseloads and infection probabilities down. What we don't know because we didn't have the data on is how how large of a response that is on the labor supply side we we know and I described how big it was on the on the on the demand side but to the extent it's there and and measurable, the speed with which we we recover, the number of people returning to work, and and so on, is going to be determined by this partially this this fear response. And so um, again, the in terms of policies to to address that, one of the things to do is solve the pandemic problem as quickly as possible.
0: Rashad, I want to bring you into conversation for a second. Um, this is in many ways we've described a communication challenge. How do you, um, we've, I guess we have like three objectives. Number one is we want to get the unvaccinated vaccinated. The second one is we want the vaccinated people to go back to work and engage in a full life. And the third is, um, we want unvaccinated people to behave cautiously until they're, uh, until they get vaccinated. And I think the government and public policy officials have been very wary uh, about saying things that may confuse uh, the unvaccinated and have them act in a way that puts them at risk. Uh, Why do you think the government has been so concerned about that? And what should they do about it?
5: Rashad, I think you might be on mute.
0: I tell you what. I'll, I'll go on to another question then. Um, Chad, in, in a broader speak, you're, you're using high-frequency consumer data. Is that something that's going to be exciting for economists going forward to use to understand consumer behavior?
3: For sure. And I, I have I've seen a lot of that. You know, we've we've talked many ways today about how COVID has changed the world around us. One way, that, minor way, from for the rest of you but big for me is the kind of data that economists are using to study the state of the economy has been much more granular and even bigger I would say than the granularity is the reduction the re- reduced distance between when that data is collected and when we can analyze it for example you know just an, a, another example is back during the great recession 12 13 years ago t- Thirteen years ago, um, if you wanted to look what was going on with well, how many businesses are going out of business? What's going on with uh, job or, uh, uh, job losses through that? What's going on with business formation? How much has that fallen? You had to wait a long time before the Census Bureau or someone else came out with those numbers. We now have that very very quickly. The Census Bureau is publishing uh, uh, business formation data with a lag of only a couple, three weeks. Um, and this sort of consumer level data that Austin and I use to measure these, these effects. Um, also, you're maybe looking at a month long lag to get this very granular data on consumer behavior. Now, you don't see all that, we, we could see these numbers of consumers, we couldn't see dollars spent, but there are other kinds of data that are sort of analogous to ours that do have dollars spent. So. We're able to see much more stuff much more quickly, in part because I think the that the sort of that the apparatus was there to measure it, but I think the pandemic actually created the impetus on the parts of the entities that have been collecting this and sort of aggregating it with delay and for and putting it out cleaner but slower, just making this available much earlier than it was, and I think that that's going to be um very useful going forward both the again increased granularity and the and the quicker lag, uh, the slower sorry, shorter lag times
0: chad um i want to change topics to end on a note of optimism we do that each uh show to again to get negative in these times of COVID. but I, I i really think there's a lot to look up to and be positive about chad uh, as you look at the world what are you optimistic about
3: I'm optimistic, very optimistic about this summer in the United States, economically and, I hope, socially. Um, I think you, uh, Europe and much of the rest of the OECD will be six to nine months behind us. I hope that that gives policymakers some breathing room to address um, the pandemic in, in developing countries to reduce the time that we're going to be dealing with it there because, of course, we're all connected in a, in a pandemic world. Um, but in the short run, I, I really do think the um, cases are coming down, people are uh, getting vaccinated still at a very decent clip, and I think we're going to have a lot of economic activity coming um, for the rest of 2021. Chad, thank
0: you. Terry Kawaja, what are you optimistic about? oh my gosh i am so optimistic
7: i mean obviously first and foremost science works right this is a miracle that within a year we uh multiple uh firms got to a functioning vaccine as someone said the other day you know uh outrage sells so you hear that in the media and competency is boring and it doesn't make much media let's take a step back and think about how uh how great these uh vaccinations are are going not to mention a government that's uh competent in in getting it uh, distributed uh the economy is projected to grow at seven and a half percent last time i checked that was china rates of growth so i mean my god if the economy is coming back uh you know the u.s economy in particular has got so much more resilient uh, I love the resiliency of the human spirit. Everyone is looking to get back at it, and probably the best thing, the best thing that i'm that I'm optimistic about, is that when we do get back, and this relates to Rashad's uh, comment, we are going to rethink how we want to do life I mean work, home, everything. We're going to prioritize the things uh, that we want, and it took this massive reset to uh, rethink how we want to live the rest of our lives. And I think that's going to be long-term,
0: huge benefit for society. Terry, I want you to know that was the most optimistic comment by any speaker uh, in my uh, over a year of doing the show. Thank you for that. That was wonderful. Uh, Rashad, I don't know if you're still on the line. Uh, Do you want to say something about what
5: you're optimistic about? Uh, Yes, I am. Uh, I would say that I believe very much like Terry, we're about to take a quantum jump on three different fronts. We are going to take a quantum jump all over the world as a society. We're now beginning to understand that society matters. And by the time all of this gets through, that'll be one. Second is a quantum jump in understanding that government actually matters, competency matters and good government matters. And we no longer are going to basically make the joke you know, that Reagan basically had is you know, government is here to help you. Yes, for God's sakes, if there was no government, there would be a problem. And the third is that every individual is going to recognize that the meaning of life is that it stops, and so you rethink things. And when you rethink things, you actually do better things.
0: Okay, that ends today's session, but I want to take a minute to make a plug for next week's show. Uh, Sunday, April 25th, Sunil Gupta will join us from Harvard Business School. Sunil will discuss digital marketing strategies. Our second speaker will be Brad Thompson, who is a professor at political science at Clemson. Brad will discuss his new book entitled, America's Revolutionary Mind, about the founders' views on both liberty and rights. Terry Williams will join us. Terry is an ethnographic sociologist at the New School, and he has a new book entitled, The Boogie Woogie, about an after-hours cocaine club in Harlem. This will be followed by a panel on industrial labs. The Pulitzer Prize winner, Michael Hiltzik, will discuss how Xerox failed to capitalize on his innovation research on the computer mouse and handheld devices, and John Gertner will discuss his book, The Idea Factory, on Bell Labs and its more successful innovation process. I would like to thank today's speakers for their insights. I would also like to thank our listeners both for their time and for engaging with these complex issues. Please stay tuned for next Sunday to find out what happens next. Thank you, and goodbye.